in Brazil. They broke us out into groups, and then they had a volunteer, uh, an English-speaking volunteer, take a group of six, seven of us, and they would drop us off in the middle of a random part of the city. Mm. And they're like, figure out a way to come back. It was like, again, a human connective experience, right? Where you were like learning how to read a map. You were learning how to use a public transportation system. You had to talk to people and use your gestures. And it's like, wow, like if I can find my way home from like from two hours away, which it did take two hours for us to get back uh, <laughs> without speaking the language, without Google Translate, I can survive, I think pretty much survive anywhere. And it gave me a lot of confidence mm. uh, in my future travels. Yeah. And those are the types of immersive experiences that I think train you to solve problems and real life problems in a very human based way. Hello, hello! Welcome to Young, Gifted, and Abroad, perspectives on studying abroad from past and present students of color. My name is Danielle, and I'm so excited to be able to talk to you today because today I have my friend Yesel as the guest. Yesel is a storyteller with a background in urban planning and business, and she currently lives in Italy. But before all that, Yesel actually grew up in Guam and then moved to Maryland in middle school and went on to study urban planning and international development at MIT. And while she was at MIT, uh, she spent a semester studying abroad through a program called the International Honors Program. So you might remember Stacy from episode 28 also went through the International Honors Program, and she went to Brazil, South Africa, and India. Well, Yesel, she went to Brazil, South Africa, and Vietnam, uh, studying various topics, including urban planning, which again is her specialization. So you get to hear about why Yesel was so determined to study abroad, uh, especially for that long. You'll also hear uh, some of her recollections from her her time in each of those countries she visited. And actually, there was a particular incident that happened in South Africa that would become the inspiration for her to uh, deeply consider this concept of serendipity. So much so that now she has a podcast called the serendipity stories podcast where she interviews various people about moments of serendipity that happened in their lives and had uh, a really remarkable impact on their lives and uh, yeso also does a photo project called humans of chorizo so those are some really cool storytelling projects she's doing currently to pass the time and enrich her life uh, while she's living in Italy and um, yeah this was a really fun conversation I really enjoyed Yesel's sense of humor <laughs> and her openness and I really hope that you enjoy hearing what she has to say she's really been all over and has so much to share so without further ado sit back relax and enjoy my interview with my friend, Yesel K. 
Kim. Do you prefer Esol or is it Yesol? Oh my gosh, you actually said it really well in the oh, Korean way. Did Are I? You Korean? <laughs> like, you don't sound Korean, but how come you know how to say my name? What? No, I uh, <laughs> not Korean. <laughs> I um <laughs> no, I uh, watched like Korean media for years, and I don't know. I can, I can... tell it's showing. <laughs> I love it. Dang. I just um, I. Oh, well, sorry. Go ahead. I was about to interrupt you. Sorry. No, it's, <laughs> so in America, I go by Esol, not mm-hmm. by choice, but because Americans can't say the yes part. Mm-hmm. But if you call me yes, like, great. Like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I just, I try to get people's names right. And I know, like, like you said, here in America, if your name's even a little different, you, you kind of feel, you might feel pressured to, you know, change the pronunciation and make it easier for people. So I was just trying to make sure how you actually for want sure. people to say your name. So Well, but you know what's interesting is I didn't change it because I wanted it comfortable for other people, but I changed it because I hated it when they laughed or butchered it and and made it yeah like it was like my fault and I was like, "Well, I don't want to hear you butcher my name." Mm-hmm. So I'd rather just Take that out of the equation, and yeah, I mean, maybe it's all on the same side of the same coin, but yeah. yeah. I see. <laughs> I understand, you know, obviously I can't relate because my name is very common. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, you know. Well, you know what? One day, let's switch names for a day and <laughs> see if anything changes. <laughs> yeah, we could try that. <laughs> okay, well, uh, thank you for... Agreeing to be a guest on this podcast. I'm really interested to learn more about you and, and your experiences. I also listened to uh, some of your show. It seems really interesting. I'd be really interested to talk about that as well at some point. Um, right. So why don't we start with you introducing yourself a bit, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, my name is Yesu Kim. I was born in Korea, lived in Guam, uh, considered Boston my home. But now I live in Treviso, Italy, which is in the northeast, 20 minutes outside of Venice. Mm. So you've been like all over. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I've traveled, I think, 38, 39 countries so far. Mm-hmm. So were you like, did you graduate high school in Guam and then move to Boston for for university? No, I actually went to middle school and high school in the suburbs of Maryland, okay. uh, close to Washington, D.C., and then got into college uh, in the Boston area, and that's where I had the bulk of my career. Okay, gotcha. As someone who's not very familiar with Guam, can you describe Guam as you remember it and what it was like for you living there? Wait, well, you've never heard of Guam? I'm so surprised. No, I've, only- <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, I've heard of it. I just don't know much about it is all. <laughs> yeah, of, of course, like, it's okay if folks have not heard about it. It is literally like a booger in the middle of the <laughs> Pacific Ocean, <laughs> only in, uh, you know, globes made in the United States, do they even put it on there <laughs> as wow. a courtesy? Because it's a territory of the United States, just mm-hmm. like Puerto Rico is. And uh, Guam is this beautiful tropical island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, 
I believe, 14 degrees north of the equator, mm. which means basically 100% humidity mm. and always, you know, 80 plus degrees. Um, very small. I think it's 28 miles long and at the narrowest point, 14 miles wide. Hmm. And you could do a whole loop around the island in less than two hours. Wow. And in the middle, there were jungles and these secret ponds. And most of the economy is based on tourism. Okay. So a lot of Japanese and Korean tourists come to Guam for their honeymoon. And yeah, it's a, it's a little island of like we, I grew up with. Uh, papaya trees mm. in our backyard with bana- like fresh bananas, coconuts. There'd be coconut crabs everywhere and we'd go run and chase them and then steam them up for dinner. <laughs> go fishing every weekend, just jump into the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And it was very idyllic. But it's also, now that I am a bit older, I recognize it's a town of the haves and have-nots. Mm. You see the it's kind of like Las Vegas in some sense, right? The ritzy, beautiful resort, beach resorts along the main beach called Ibao Beach. But then most of the population and the native population called Chamorans were living really in, in stark poverty mm. and public school systems just weren't really set up to, um, you know, have, have the same opportunities. And so, it was a mix of cultures of white American culture with a lot of Asian influences as well. Mm, okay. All right. Well, thank you for that, for that description. It definitely paints a picture. You're on in, in an American territory, right? But then you go f- from there to moving to the States. So, I mean, was that still a major adjustment or were you already kind of like familiar with American culture or interacting with Americans before you moved to? The States? Absolutely not. Okay. (laughs) The only thing I knew about America were from two sources. One was – actually, three. One, when I was seven years old, was my first time ever stepping into mainland America, and that was at Disneyland. And I was like, wow, if America is like Disneyland, this is great. We should move here. And (laughs) all I knew at the time. And the second thing was – um, I was part of the Scholastic Book Club. So anyone who's probably 25 years or older, mm-hmm, we would get those. these, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> at school, you would get this form to fill out and you could order books. I mean, genius uh, business strategy. Mm-hmm. And I subscribe to the Babysitter's Club series. And Aww. so <laughs> all I knew about America, I thought every city in America was like Stony Brook, Connecticut. <laughs> and um, I had no idea what to expect, but I thought, okay, because Claudia Kishi, who is like the Japanese-American character, mm. was Asian, I thought I had to be artistic and dress a certain way, like described in the book. And mm. so that was another fail as well when I first started middle school. 
And the last thing I knew about American culture was、uh, from watching TRL, like Total Request Live,、oh、with Carson Daly, <laughs> from three to three thirty p.m. after school, and I was like, so I knew all like the '90s music for、okay. sure, and all the like. This was like Limp Bizkit, and you know the emo days of a、uh, Blink One Eighty Two and things like that.、Mm-hmm. Um, but that's all I knew. And when I started school in Maryland, we lived in Montgomery County, which I think is it still is the sixth richest county in America. But、mm-hmm. we lived on more of the poorer side of it, and we I went to a middle school where. I think eighty to ninety percent of the students were on free and reduced lunches, and it was extremely diverse, with a lot of、uh, Hispanic and African American students.、Mm. And the only types of Asians that went there were kind of the what they call the fresh off the boats, like immigrants、mm. from Korea. And so they treated me like one of those ESL kids that didn't speak English, when in fact, like I went to private school and spoke English since I was two years old.、Mm. And so it was like a very Very different experience,、uh, not just being in America, but going from public to private school, and then from coming from like a tropical island to the suburbs of Maryland.、Right. Which is, I was like, "Where are the palm trees? Where are my coconuts? Where's the beach?" So、oh, that was a very, very contrasting、uh, experience. Yeah, I mean, so like, what helped you kind of find your footing and? Get used to not having all those palm trees and you know everything around you like you were used to before. Oh my gosh, I suffered. I suffered the first two winters because, I mean, I don't think I've ever owned like a jacket, you、mm. know, in my life. And so the winters were tough, but culturally also to adjust was really difficult.、Mm. And at that point, you know,、uh, we were. Not doing so well financially.、Hmm. Uh, it was part of the reason why why we moved, and so we had gone from this lifestyle also of, like traveling all the time. My parents were part of the Lions Club, and I remember traveling to Beijing and the Philippines, and really all over Asia at that point. To going to my parents working seven days a week,、mm. uh, and never having any vacations or traveling. Beyond, you know, like this ten square mile of of our home, yeah. And so I just focused on studying、um, because my parents had instilled in me the value of education and、mm-hmm. how important it was for me to be the first in our family to get into college. And so I threw out any kind of dream I had and only had like a one track mind, and I was. Like the super nerd of school and middle school and high school, and was like captain of everything: the tennis club, mock trial, Asian American club,、mm. <laughs> whatever I thought would look good on my resume. And、um, that's how I spent my time, just really building on my resume and trying to get into college, which then I hoped would open up more opportunities to travel. To look beyond, you know, just the day to day. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, obviously, as you know, you did get into college. You and during that time, you did get to go, you know, traveling again, right? You spent a semester, a whole semester, right? Yeah. So, how did that happen? You went from, I think you said it was a program that took you to Brazil and、uh, South Africa and Vietnam, right? So,、yeah. how did you hear about this program? Why did you decide to go? You know, how did how did all this get set in motion for you? So, I had 
two main choices uh, for college. One was to go to Georgetown and be at the International Development Program, mm -hmm. which like was kind of my goal to become a diplomat of sorts because I love traveling and I, I really love languages. It was just uh, something that came really easily to me, mm. but it felt like really too close to home. Oh, and right. <laughs> I, it was like, mm, I don't want you to do my laundry, mom. I got to learn. So, mm -hmm. so I went to MIT, which has a great humanities program, but, you know, it's known as an engineering school. Yeah. But what attracted me was all the opportunities to travel. And that mm -hmm. was actually one of my main goals in college was to travel as much as possible on MIT's dime, which mm -hmm. is very generous. Mm -hmm. And I heard of like, a, we had programs called like MISTI, where you could do a summer internship abroad and MIT would financially support you and help you find um, internships, which is mm -hmm. amazing. So I went to Mexico and France through that program. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then like also through classes, we had like practicums. And so in urban planning, especially, and my focus was on international uh, development, I got to do uh, take multiple classes that took me to like Panama and Florence, where I would compare and contrast cities. So it was really just I tried to maximize everything. Mm -hmm. And it still wasn't enough. So I was like, man, like, you know what, I've I, Georgetown had a, a semester or a year-long requirement to study abroad, and MIT didn't have that. In fact, all the MIT kids were like, are you crazy? Why would you leave campus? Like, we have, <laughs> There's so much to do, and we only have four years here. Like, mm. why would you ever leave? People come to us. And I was like, guys, you're missing out. And mm -hmm. so I was always on the lookout for really cool programs. We had a program to go to Oxford uh, and do an exchange. But I was like, oh, like an English-speaking country? Like, that seems kind of <laughs> lame. And I'm all about let's maximize experiences. So I just heard through the grapevine that there was a program called the International Honors Program. Mm. And what, it, what was extra cool about that is, as you mentioned, we went to three different countries in one semester. So five weeks in Brazil, five weeks in South Africa, and five weeks in Vietnam. And the teachers traveled with us. And I was like, great, like, let's do this. And I didn't even really think twice about it. I just applied. And um, there were 35 of us in total. We ended up in 34. I'll tell you that story later. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think twice. And I packed this large red suitcase with all the... Uh, same clothes that I wore. If you look at my photos, is all everyone's wearing the same clothes <laughs> throughout the uh, piece. And um, the focus was on urban planning, anthropology, sociology, mm -hmm. uh, and environmental sustainability. And these were all topics I was interested in. It was very immersive, it felt like. And we got to stay with homestay families. Mm. So there was a real connection to the community. And um, extremely experiential. So yeah, I signed up and I went the, I think the spring semester of my junior year. And so this, this program semester long, that was, was that the longest out of all the, like the international experiences you had when you were at MIT? Yep. Okay. Definitely. Okay. Wow. So you started in, in Brazil. And so was there like some sort of I guess, rhythm or pace of life that you got used to once you started? Was there any sort of like orientation in terms of what to expect or just, you know, 
The only thing we got used to was living out of a suitcase <laughs> because we were always moving. Mm-hmm. Even within the cities, we would, or within the countries, we would move cities. So we were, while we were in five weeks total in uh, Brazil, for example, mm-hmm. we spent three and a half weeks first in Sao Paulo, and then we spent a week and a half in Curitiba. Okay. So it was, and we would always switch roommates, and then where we were taking classes would always change. Like in South Africa, we had classes in an HIV clinic. In Vietnam, we had classes at the the Ho Chi Minh mausoleum in Mm. in one of the offices. Like most random things ever. Yeah. Uh, So there wasn't really a pace to sustain. Mm. It was always different. Like I remember when we went from South Africa to Vietnam. You know, it was bustling and there were mopeds everywhere and people coming at you trying to sell you things on the street. And for me, it felt like home because I was used to this kind of Asian culture. Mm -hmm. And instead, I remember many of my white peers were like super overwhelmed and super overstimulated compared to the idyllic, more vacation-y vibe of Cape Town, South Africa. Mm. So it was – and then Brazil was like party, party, party. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, there was partying all throughout. But Brazil, I think people went real hard because we we were also there during the carnival season. So Mm -hmm. it was just like no holding back whatsoever. Uh, so yeah, I don't think there was a pace to follow and we just kind of tried to adapt as quickly as we could and try to take in as much as we could. Okay, gotcha. I think actually I spoke to someone who did this similar program now that you've mentioned what it is, but I think the countries she went to were different. I think instead of Vietnam, she went to India, but Mm, she also went to Brazil and to South Africa as well. And Mm so... Did you realize that you kind of had a preference between a more rural, or sorry, rural setting or more like urban metropolitan setting as you were going from from country to country? And for me, the experience wasn't about the location as much as the people that I met along the way. Mm. It was the first time where I understood that language is powerful, but so is everything else when you communicate with somebody. Yeah. I just had meaningful connections with almost all my homestay mothers. Mm. And I would ask them about life and marriage and what it meant to have kids or how they were managing to do everything, Mm. uh, which kind of like called a lot of the feminist in me today. (laughs) But also the people we met on the street or like at parties or on the beach who would just invite us into their homes or their uh, you know, their cousin's birthday parties. It was just such a beautiful, beautiful connection to have with the people. Yeah. And yeah, the, the settings were also beautiful. And you learned, and I'm an urban planner. Uh, that's what I studied. But what remains impressionable for me is that doesn't matter. It's how you connect with people at the mm. end of the day that really you hold on to and that you remember for the rest of your life. Yeah, I bet. I bet. So you so you had a positive experience of doing homestay because I know that can be kind of like intimidating for some people living with strangers and all that, but you that went that went well for you. You had positive interactions with your host families. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm like an extrovert and like 
I pretend I'm a journalist, right? <laughs> AKA I'm like nosy. So I'm like, okay. oh, tell me about your life. Like, mm-hmm. how do you guys, like I say, how do you guys make it work? Well, tell me about this recipe. Oh, where did your family come from? So I was just really enjoyed spending time with my host families. Other, other kids, you know, maybe wanted to just party and they use them, you know, like as a place to sleep and whatnot. But mm-hmm. for me, I wanted to feel a part of that family. And so I gave as much as they gave back to me. And it was, it was a lot of love exchanged. Yeah. Wow. That's really great. I've, I've heard, um, some not so great stories when it comes <laughs> to homestead families. Not that it, the, the, that idea, the practice itself is not worthwhile, but you know, sometimes when you're, well, with anything, when you're interacting with people, you don't know how it's going to go. So, For sure. Uh, I will say the best homestay family was in Vietnam. I was with two other girls. Mm. And the two other girls were vegan. And try being vegan in Vietnam. <laughs> like, they don't understand this concept. And the, they had this lady, <laughs> a domestic worker, they call her an auntie, who prepared, like, amazing full meals every three like every three three meals like lunch breakfast dinner right and mm-hmm. they couldn't eat any of it so there's just always oh. more for me i was like this is great oh. <laughs> it was amazing i felt bad for the vegans they, i think they drank like soy milk and that was it for breakfast i'm like guys you're you're missing oh, that's out that's so sad <laughs> that's so sad that's interesting though because when i think of vietnamese food i think of like lots of fresh like vegetables and like like herbs and everything. So I would assume, uh, yeah, no, ignorantly, I guess that the veganism might be easier because there's already so many vegetables in the, in the cuisine and everything, but maybe the, the killer was when, uh, they put fish sauce in everything. Ah, uh, okay. Yep. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> I was like, you don't have to be, I told my host mom, don't be so honest. They're not going to know. And like, like, fish sauce doesn't taste like fish. And if they're vegan, they don't know what fish tastes like. So like, <laughs> <laughs> Who cares? Just call it salt, you know? Call it soy sauce. Um, <laughs> no, that's horrible. But it was really funny traveling mm-hmm. with vegans all around the world and trying to exp- for them to try to explain it to these different cultures, right? Like, even my mom, when I try to be vegan, she would, she'd, like, feed me meat dumplings. I'm like, Mom, I can't. I'm vegan now. And she's like, yeah, there are vegetables in it. I'm like, no, that's not what be- – <laughs> vegan doesn't equal vegetables. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Uh, cultural differences. Right. Right. <laughs> okay. So, um, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Just sit on it for a second. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So obviously you're there meeting people and experiencing cultures and everything, but you're also there to, to study, right? So how is, how was being in class or like the instructional, learning part of it structured in this program, given that you're only in these places for a short period of time and then you're, you know, moving on. How, how was that structured? So there were some cross-country assignments, which I thought was really cool to do a comparative analysis. Mm-hmm. I chose to focus on different shopping streets and how they were structured, built, how people engage with them, uh, which was fun. There were other ones where we would have to keep a journal and write down, like, insights that we had as we were observing the city. 
some some of them involved, you know, in the anthropology classes, interviewing our homestay families, which is great, right, to mm-hmm. connect with the people that you live with. But for me, the best parts were the immersive experiences mm-hmm. where I remember on our first day in Brazil, they broke us out into groups and then they had a volunteer, uh, an English-speaking volunteer, university student take a group of six, seven of us, and they would drop us off in the middle of a random part of the city. Mm. And they're like, figure out a way to come back. And we're only giving you $2.20 or reals for transport money. The rest you figure out. (laughs) So it was like done in a safe way because we had a Portuguese speaker with us. But it was like we had to start asking questions right like mm-hmm. or, or like ask for a map and this was before iPhones were very prevalent this is 2009 mm-hmm. and we weren't even uh, we were told we were actually discouraged to bring laptops and phones on this trip and oh so wow okay it was like again a human connective experience right where you were like learning how to read a map you were learning how to use a public transportation system you had to talk to people and use your gestures and it's like wow like if I can find my way home from like from two hours away, which it did take two hours for us to get back, uh, <laughs> without speaking the language, without Google Translate, you mm-hmm. know, like I can survive. I think pretty much survive anywhere, and it gave me a lot of confidence mm. uh, in my future travels. And so, yeah, and those are the types of immersive experiences that I think that train you to solve problems uh, and real life problems in a very human based way. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes sense. They discourage you from bringing laptops or cell phones, right? So if you wanted to communicate with loved ones back home, I mean, how, how did you go about doing that? (laughs) I'm going to sound so old when I talk about this. Like kids under the age of 25 won't even know what I'm talking about. So when I went in 2009, this is when like the iPhone 3 came out, right? There were still buttons on the iPhone 3. And then, uh, laptops were like very bulky. This was before MacBook Air. So they were at Mm. least weighed like 10 pounds. But either way, I think 95% of us didn't bring a laptop. Um, And so if we needed to connect with our loved ones, we would write letters. Oh, yeah, of course. Before we went, because we were moving around so much, you kind of have to like estimate when the letters should arrive. And so beforehand, I sent it to all my friends like, hey, if you want to send me like in February, send it to this address. If you're like thinking about sending me something in March, send it to South Africa, et cetera, et cetera. So that was number one. Mm. Number two, we would go to internet cafes and, uh. you know, put coins in <laughs> for every 10 minutes to use uh, the internet to write back. Or I kept up a blog, which was really fun. And then if we wanted to call anyone, we had to buy phone cards mm-hmm. and then scratch that off, call, you know, spend like 10 minutes or less because otherwise it would cost too much. But really, we didn't connect that often with the people back. It was really about staying in the moment. Right. Um, and it was such a different time. And yeah, you just have to rely on your your wits to go about your day. <laughs> right. Yeah. Go analog. And then all our... <laughs> Uh, all our assignments were actually also done by hand. And so I was like writing five, six page essays wow. um, in cursive by hand. So, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I feel really old now. No, no, that's actually, you know, because 
being able to write letters or even writing papers by hand. I feel like all that is is valuable to know how to do when the time comes or whatever. And I was when I was listening to you, I was thinking, you know, it was a different time. I feel like compared to now where we might have this impulse to always have our phone in our hand or be checking it or mm-hmm. feel feel connected or like we might be missing out on something if we're not always, you know, uh, having a, a device nearby. You, I guess you really wouldn't have had that impulse in, in 2009 anyway. So you, it wouldn't have yeah. felt like you were really missing out on anything or, you know. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So writing letters, internet cafes. I always forget internet cafes exist. I think because I'm so used to, if you have the means, you can pretty much have, you know, your own internet in your own computer your phone or whatever so i right I forget. or maximum you go to a coffee shop or something right or to it, the library or something but yeah. um yeah okay so then it worked out you you, you kind of really didn't you're focused on being in, in like the moment of being present wherever you were and whatever you were doing during this program but also you know you had a means to communicate with people <laughs> if you needed to uh, <laughs> exactly yeah okay was there ever a case where like Someone has sent you a letter to where you were in South Africa, and then you you'd already moved on to Brazil. Uh, sorry, Vietnam, and so there's just all these letters that kind of trail behind and never reach you. I don't know if. You <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> that was a You're touching scenario. on a heart wrenching story. So. Oh no! Um, okay. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think half uh, the kids on the program had broken up with their significant others right before the trip because, oh. like. You're like 19, like who's, or 20, like, you know, you, how are you going to sustain that? Right. And I had just broken up with my ex-boyfriend, but he like would write me letters every now and then. I would write him like way too many letters. And um, I remember he told me he sent me a package to Vietnam, but Vietnam's like a very communist country, right? Or it mm. is a communist country and there's a lot of like controls and the pa- I never got the package. And I don't know, maybe if I'd gotten it, we would have gotten back together or something. <laughs> but he apparently sent me a gift and a long letter, and I'll never know what was what was in that letter. But wow. yeah, it's uh, it was tough to get those letters in time. And it's not like in South Africa they would forward it to us in Vietnam. So yeah, right. but back then it like there was no sense of like immediacy. It wasn't like Amazon Prime deli- same day delivery, right? Like, mm-hmm. There was right, no right. concept of that. It was it was like expected. Like oh crap, shoot! If anything that I send and whatever my friends send me is gonna arrive, and that was just part of it. Mm-hmm. So some things might have gotten lost in, in the shuffle, but it was just like something to be expected, I guess. Exactly. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Oh man, <laughs> you never got you, right. You never know. Maybe you might have gotten back together. Who knows? Maybe it would have, like you said, we don't know. <laughs> yeah, don't we'll never know. know. We'll never know. <laughs> wow. Okay. So okay. So in Brazil, you said you were in in Sao Paulo, and then you were in um, what was the name of the rural area that you went in Curitiba. In Okay. Which is not rural, but it's more like an eco-friendly hippie city. Uh, much smaller than Sao Paulo, yeah. Okay. And then in South Africa, you were in Cape Town, right? Yes. We and lived then- in uh, the Bokop, which is literally in the city. Uh, and then later in Longa, which is a, uh, considered a black township. Okay. And, and Vietnam, where, where were you in Vietnam? 
Vietnam, we spent most of the time in Hanoi in the north, which is quite interesting because most of the Vietnamese Americans are from the south uh, due to the war. And um. so it was like I was when I would explain my experiences with my Vietnamese American friends, they would be like, we don't know what you're talking about because we're from the south and mm. it's a completely different culture. Um, but then later on, I believe we went to a rural countryside uh, kind of retreat town called Hoi An, I think. It was like rice patties for days. Okay. Wow, that's interesting. So there's still that like cultural difference between North and South Vietnam. Well, I guess it makes sense because Vietnam, it, it's a, you know, countries have like different types of like communities and cultures within them. You know, that's not all just just one thing. In American schools, like we're used to thinking North and South Vietnam just in terms of like the war, but not in terms yeah. of like differences, maybe even culturally. So I don't know. That's really interesting that you you say that because that's not something I, I would have considered until you mentioned Me neither. It. Until I, you know, I bought like these shirts and I, it, these are shirts I bought in Hanoi and I bought them as souvenirs for my friends. And one of my best friends is Vietnamese American. He's like, you know, that's like the communist t-shirt and my parents were refugees from the South. Oh, wow. I was like, oh, <laughs> nobody taught me this in my class. Sorry. So yeah. just taking it back. <laughs> right. You said it was kind of familiar in terms of, I guess, when you first arrive and being around all these people, like this like chaotic traffic or people trying to sell you stuff. As, you know, a Korean American person, being in this Asian country that you had never been in before, how was that like for you? I mean, was it just like exploring a new country like all the other new countries you'd been to, or was it different because you are Asian as well? So there were only two Asians out of 35 people mm. on this um, in this group, and I think only one black woman, and the rest were like white folk, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe one or two Hispanics. And so we were like, I already stood out from that perspective. Yeah. And then, um, and actually though, in Brazil, there's a huge Japanese population. Oh, so right. when I would walk down the street, people would think that I was like Japanese Brazilian and like asking questions and directions and Portuguese. <laughs> I was like, Oh, sorry. I don't speak uh, Portuguese. Yeah. And then in Vietnam, Everyone could, all the Vietnamese people could tell that I was not Vietnamese. And in fact, they could tell I was Korean. And luckily, this is when K-pop was really on the rise. So oh. Everyone wanted to be my friend. Yeah. And asked me about K-pop. And I'm like, oh, but I'm Korean American. I don't know anything about Korean culture. I'm sorry. <laughs> but just the fact that I could speak a little bit of Korean, they, they definitely appreciated that and wanted to talk um but my colleagues my peers they were like i said overwhelmed you know they're like typical american tourists at this point and so mm. when people would be pushy they would just get like scammed right like paying i don't know like twenty thousand dong for a magnet when really you should pay a thousand and they're like oh i guess it's a good price i'm like no what are you doing so <laughs> i became like the designated like shopper friend for all my white friends wow. i would go and i didn't even speak vietnamese but i was like with this i was like guys this is how you do it you bring out a calculator and then you put they put a number you divide it by two they'll multiply it by five and then you minus like twenty thousand dong and then you'll get to like a number that's gonna be 
way less than the 20,000 dong that they like quoted you in the first place. And so mm-hmm. they couldn't do it. And it was like, just in my culture that I was like, of course you're supposed to haggle. That doesn't mean you're being rude. I mean, I, I felt, I felt really more in my element for sure in Vietnam. Brazil, again, I didn't feel othered. I'd say in South Africa is where I felt really like there were some kids in these townships mm. that had never seen an Asian person in their life, right? Mm. I remember one time we were at a little school, the bunch of like preschoolers, and they were like running around and like talking to us, tugging our shirt. And then I took off my sunglasses and they had never seen like almond-shaped eyes. Oh goodness. They look their eyes went big. And they were like and then they were like, ah and they screamed and ran away. Oh no. <laughs> and like I don't think I didn't take it like offensively or in a racist. It was just like wow, they had never seen an Asian person, mm-hmm. and to them it was like the the strangest thing in the world. And yeah, in general, in um in South Africa, either they thought I was Chinese or they had never seen an Asian person. They're like, "Where are you from? Who are you?" And mm-hmm. um, poke and prod me, and so I mean, it was in that point I didn't have any issues of like thinking about my race or ethnicity. I just mm-hmm. took it just kind of in as is. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it was, there There have been different, um, I think I've had definitely a different experience as an Asian American traveling than any of my white peers did. Yeah, definitely. That's, that doesn't, um, that doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at, at some point, so I think you said in, in um, one of your emails, you wrote an ostrich at, oh my god! At what yeah. point? When? When did this happen? Where you were writing an ostrich? <laughs> oh my god! You know, in preparing for this call, I went back to my diary that I wrote in <laughs> when I was studying abroad, and I have my top twentieth craziest moments from studying abroad. The ostrich isn't even number one. It's like mm. number six. Right, right. <laughs> the ostrich, um, just to quickly tell you that story, we had a spring break in South Africa right before we were moving on to Vietnam. And along the garden route, so this is along the coast from uh, Cape Town to, let's say, Durban, mm. there was a place called Outshoren, very outdoorsy. And um, they had ostriches. To It was an ostrich farm, and one person from the crowd could ride it. And I was like, me! And I, <laughs> the thing about riding an ostrich is, like, they're not meant to be ridden, right. and you can't, like, tame an ostrich. So really, you're just hanging on for your dear life. It's like a rodeo. Oh, and um, you try not to get their talons to swipe your face because they have really sharp talons. And yeah, I rode an ostrich for about 20, 30 seconds. And uh, <laughs> it's all my glory is on YouTube. And I've had 150 views. How amazing is that? Wow. So did you get thrown off? I did. Yeah. I mean, those things are like huge and then very powerful. And then they just like run around. They cover their eyes, their whole head. And so they're in a panic mode. And then there's like this hundred pound girl on top of they're like, what's going on? And ostriches do not want to be ridden. So yeah. I can imagine. (laughs) Never to be done again, but glad glad to have done it once. Oh my gosh. (laughs) 
Oh, you are truly a brave soul, because I know I would not be trying to get on anyone's ostrich. <laughs> well, it's okay. I um, I I got the ostrich back though because I had an ostrich burger later that day. I feel so bad. Oh no, <laughs> that's so bad. Oh my gosh. But it was really good. I gotta tell you. Really. I've never uh, considered ostrich meat, so I don't know. Is it just like any other? Does it taste like any other burger or any other poultry? Like chicken? It's very fluffy. No, it's more like uh, beef, but okay. fluffier and lighter in texture. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> but as you said, that wasn't like the the craziest story. I know you mentioned also that one of your classmates got hit by a car unfortunately i mean she's fine now right but like yeah. <laughs> at the time it was pretty serious right oh my gosh so this is actually episode one of my um podcast series the mm-hmm. serendipity stories and we didn't even include this like my part of the story in the podcast but so we had uh, a girl named joe she was from new york and um, we had been living across the street from in our township called Longa. Mm-hmm. And her roommate, her, myself, and my roommate would often walk to class together in the mornings. But this was two days before spring break. And for the first time, like, in my life, I decided to play hooky <laughs> and go to an internet cafe <laughs> to check up on my emails and whatnot. Mm. And so Joe and her roommate, Alana, just walked to school and uh, out of nowhere, this drunk driver in a combi bus, which is like a 12-passenger van, hits her in the middle of as she's walking across the street. And she flies literally like 30 feet in the air. Mm. Her, her The impact was so hard that her shoes remained in the point of impact. So she was flying barefoot, Whoa. landed 30 feet away on the asphalt. And this is like miles away from from the city center and this is a poor area so it took over 40 minutes for an ambulance to get there Mm. she loses her teeth she has a punctured wound her knee her leg is completely twisted so that like the sole of her foot is pointing upwards and then the knee is pointing downwards and she's like (laughs) just losing all this blood alana screams and um but luckily her parents had flown all the way from new york uh because they were supposed to go on safari together Mm. and so eventually ambulance comes they make it to the hospital She's being crazy. She's like, can you please clean me up? Because I'm worried my parents are going to freak out. And they're like, uh, we have more important things to do than, like, make your face pretty. <laughs> yeah. We're trying to keep you alive. And turns out she had, like, a punctured lung and all these things. And oh, uh, was in the ICU. And that's where she decided that, man, obviously, life is really short. She was studying economics at the time. And she completely decides that she wants to pursue her career, uh, a different career path when she goes back to graduate. Mm. And I won't spoil it for your listeners, but you'll have to listen to yeah. episode one on what she <laughs> decides to do with the, the rest of her life. But she's, and he, the funny part of all of this is I was actually supposed to be her roommate in Vietnam. Mm. And so she never made it to Vietnam. We never got a chance to be roommates. And um, I always joke with her that I owe her a trip to Vietnam because we never got to spend that time together. Oh, that would be really sweet to go to Vietnam together, you know, have a nice, 
you know, friend trip to Vietnam. Obviously, for sure. can't do that right now, but, you know, <laughs> maybe sometime next year. <laughs> good point. Good point. Um, yes. <laughs> but no, that'd be sweet. That would be, I can imagine that would be so much fun getting to do that. Yeah. Um, so she's the one you're referring to when you said it was 35 and it went down to 34, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. She never made it with us. Well, I'm glad she's doing okay. That must be so scary. <laughs> oh, she's um, doing great and then some. Yeah. So, oh my gosh. Wow. When you, well, when you travel in general, but especially when you're going on study abroad, uh, like doing a study abroad program, you get briefed on safety or someone, someone in your family might, you know, decide to suddenly become a researcher and tell you all the things that you need to be wary of, but you never consider getting, potentially getting hit by a minibus, you know, when you're out there. Exactly. And that's what inspired me actually to create my podcast called the serendipity stories because Mm -hmm. serendipity happens to us all the time. It's when life happens to you, right? When you can't, even if you're the best planner, like nobody planned this pandemic and here we are and we're trying to make sense of it. And while in the moment it might not you might not understand the meaning of why it happened or what its significance is. You know, it's with hindsight that you could look back and be like, oh, wow, because this happened, like that led to this, which led to that, which led me to be who I am today. Mm -hmm. But it's like sometimes at tiny little moments or like really life and death situations, like getting hit by a bus or Mm -hmm. a crumpled up newspaper that completely changes like a, like a Willy Wonka ticket, you know? Um, yeah. You just never know where these little moments of serendipity are going to are gonna happen. I think they're really beautiful and we should embrace it. And those happen more often when you go outside of your comfort zone. And that happens when you travel. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I've had many moments of my own serendipity while, while studying abroad. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask um, – I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I was going to ask why serendipity of all things to – base um your podcast around but i really i like the way you put it you know how it's something that happens in in all of our lives and we don't know how they how they come but you know they can they're often quite profound and and life-changing so do you you know off the top of your head remember any moments that felt very serendipitous to you while you were um you know studying abroad for for a semester Looking at my craziest moments, let's see if there's any that actually spark some serendipity. <laughs> um, I can't remember. I think Joe was the biggest serendipity moment because mm-hmm. also, like, that could have been me. Like, if I had chosen not to play hooky and walk down, right. you know, <laughs> the street with her. Yeah. But I will say, I did go back to South Africa three more times, and specifically Cape Town. Mm. And I remember one day, I was there for my thesis, I was walking down the street, and I asked a girl where the Greenpoint Stadium was for, you know, that's where the, for the um, World Cup. Mm. And she was like, oh, well, I work at the McDonald's there, I'll walk with you. And as we were talking, I found out that she had the same birthday as me. Wow. Like, same day, same month, and same year. So we're basically twins born on (laughs) different sides of the world. And she was telling me about her life and just how different it is, right? Mm -hmm. Like, at that point, I was, like, getting my master's from MIT and urban planning and traveling to South Africa for fun. And this girl never had a chance to be educated, 
she was had to commute two hours for uh, to even get to this McDonald's job, mm-hmm. being paid I don't know like five dollars an hour maybe, like always at risk of being a woman walking down the streets because the violence against especially against women in South Africa was so tremendous. Mm-hmm. And here we were like we just met each other on the street as twins, um, but our lives were so different. From that encounter, I never heard from her again. Again, this was before, like, iPhones and mm. exchanging numbers. I think maybe Facebook was, like, two, three years into – we were th- two, three years into Facebook. But mm-hmm. um, she really inspired me to tell more stories about people and how they see the city and how they live their lives within the si- a context of a city mm. and uh, was inspiration for a video web series uh, project I started called Sense of the City. Mm. But um, it's moments like this when I, I talk about the human connection, right? Yeah. Like a st- kind stranger who offered to walk with me to the stadium turns out to be my twin <laughs> from a different uh, background but still really thoughtful you know mm-hmm. and and the idea of just learning so much from a one hour not even one hour like a 30 minute conversation it's just something that I took away with and I wanted to kind of recreate through through my video web series yeah that's a really nice story Thank you for telling that story. <laughs> Thank you for like um, calling all these memories back to the surface. Oh my god, I'm gonna have weird, <laughs> have weird dreams tonight for sure. <laughs> oh, I hope they. I hope they're not too weird. I hope not. Um, I, I meant to ask earlier, and it slipped my mind. Like you had already traveled with your parents, right? But then you were kind of. Uh, I don't want to say stuck, but you stayed stateside for for a while, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, How did they feel about you going away for a semester and going to all all these new places? My parents are not the type to be super worried. And I was like super independent, even like age two, right? Like Mm. a little sassy and misindependent boss lady. So (laughs) they were never... Like, they never had the authority to ever say no, and nor were they ever too worried to to stop me mm-hmm. and convince me otherwise. They were like, oh, cool. Like, stay safe. You know, like, <laughs> do you need any vaccines before you go? Yeah. <laughs> but honestly, they were pretty chill about it. And mm-hmm. I think they were more – and the best part was I think my sister had just started university – and so they were more worried about her. Uh, that's <laughs> so right. I just got to like slip under the radar. Um, but yeah, I mean, we stayed in touch every now and then. I think uh, they didn't have email. So I would call them like probably once a month just to let them know I was alive. But does it? Mm, okay. And then can you imagine like telling your parents it's going to be fine and then you and get then hit you- by a bus? <laughs> <laughs> And then she was made probably if she like, you know, was like, touche, dad, touche. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. It didn't work out for her, but um, we're we're all alive and um, we have a beautiful story to tell from Mm -hmm. our study abroad days. Right, right. I mean, maybe this goes without saying, but you mentioned that when you said you were planning to go away for a semester... A lot of people at MIT were, like, really confused as to why you'd, you'd leave campus and whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel like you missed anything by not staying on campus that semester and going on this program instead? 
No, anyway, and I, I mean, I really shouldn't say this <laughs> publicly, but I got kicked out of my dorm anyways for a semester because oh, no. I, I threw myself a bon voyage party that got a little bit rowdy <laughs> in an all girls dorm. That was not acceptable. Oh, and, wow. uh, so like either way, I would not have been able to stay on campus. Did I miss anything? No. I had started like a nonprofit student organization called the Leadership Training Institute, and it mm-hmm. had only been up uh, and running for about a year and a half. And I had to hand over the reins to someone else. But I think that was a good thing because I could start exploring other things. And I came back, I think, more grounded and mm-hmm. had a more realistic and humanistic perspective on all the problems that, you know, we were told to solve through problem sets or homework or essays and things like that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just much more grounded. Um, MIT often is a bubble, right? Like you don't have to leave. It's this wonderful place where everybody comes to you and you can, if you want, you can have uh, attend lectures by Nobel laureates or amazing speakers come by or MIT will give you the resources, start whatever you want. Mm -hmm. But when you're in a bubble, you kind of lose touch to what's important. Yeah. And it was, it was also a very stressful ac- and very intense academic experience. And I think I needed that break. And that's why I think I'm one of the few folks within my friend circle that enjoyed my MIT experience so much because I got mm. to travel so much and yeah. I got to um, – make friends outside of MIT and understand a little bit more about what my passions are. So I really can't say I missed out on anything. Hmm. Very well put. Very well put. Yeah. Like you said, you felt like you, you gained from it outside of like beyond the academic aspect in terms of like growing as a person or like you said, feeling more grounded. So Yeah. Okay. And you said you're in, in Italy now, right? Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, how how long have you been living in Italy? Has it been a long time? Just 15 months. Okay. Uh, I moved from Boston to Rome first, uh, stayed there for about nine months, and then my husband switched jobs again. So here we are in Treviso since last September. Wow. Okay. How, how has that been for you living in, in Italy? Oh, my gosh. It's so funny. So Treviso is this really historic town um, built inside of a wall and it's about like 5,000 people inside the the walls and Mm. then maybe about 60,000 in the immediate periphery and I'm like oh my gosh nothing happens in Treviso it's so boring (laughs) how am I gonna feel like I'm a world traveler what am I doing here Mm. like it's so boring and then like three months later the coronavirus ravaged through Italy. Oh my God. <laughs> Treviso was one of the first regions to be shut down and we oh. were under strict quarantine. And I was like, I will never ever say that Treviso is boring again. Please let me out of this quarantine. <laughs> oh, so that's how it's been. You know, I came here tried to adjust, then was under quarantine. Now things are definitely reopening. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm doing a fun project to kind of get to to accelerate getting to know people. Mm -hmm. Because here, it's a very conservative town. 
if you know people, uh, you'll only know people if you've been here forever. Mm. And if you're like, you know, your parents or grandparents used to go to church together. And I was like, I'm American. I'm not going to wait 10 years to get to know you or like, <laughs> you know, to say hi to you on the street. Let's accelerate this process. And so yeah. I started a photojournalism project called Humans of Treviso, mm. which is basically Humans of New York. Where I do the interviews, I get to practice my Italian, I grab coffees with folks, and then my friend Davide Ronfini is a photographer, and then he takes his, their photos, and then we're um, posting it on Instagram and Facebook, and mm-hmm. it's been really fun because we're doing a chain. So once we interview someone, we ask them to nominate the next person, oh, and so okay. it's like kind of expanding our friend circle, and right. we're starting to get some important folks. Like tomorrow, I'm interviewing the mayor of Treviso. Nice. So yeah, like I want the mayor of my town to know me like i don't want to wait forever i pay my taxes you know like (laughs) you should know me and um it's been just a fun way to to introduce myself uh Mm -hmm. to folks and get to know them and be invited into their homes yeah that sounds really exciting and and like you said a very clever way to circumvent having to wait 10 years to get to know people (laughs) but i think this is a structured way of basically what I was doing when I was studying abroad, right? Mm -hmm. Like everything started from my study abroad experience of having the confidence and knowing the value of connecting with strangers and becoming more than strangers. And maybe you'll never talk to them again. Maybe you'll see them just once more in your life, but you'll, you'll always have that moment. You'll all, because there's a concept in Korean called chong. And Chong is more than love. It's about the strength of a connection you have with someone uh, mm-hmm. and that relationship. And that's what I want to have with as many people as possible because I think that's what keeps you grounded and that's what gives your life meaning. Yeah. Like, I don't want to collect more gold coins along the way, like in Mario Kart or whatever. <laughs> like, what I want to collect are these moments. And so, um, you know, in study abroad, it, was, it happened very spontaneously. Here, I'm trying to recreate and re-engineer serendipity and relationships through through this project. Yeah, yeah. And and was the serendipity podcast, was that something that you also decided to start because you were bored in Treviso, or was that something you already <laughs> had in mind to, to start for a while? No, no, I think you hit the nail on its head. Um, <laughs> since, moving, <laughs> since moving to Treviso... I was like, okay, let's take a pause on job searches and things like that. And I really wanted to focus on storytelling projects. Mm -hmm. And I started off as a videographer and I'm a writer. But I thought podcasting is one of the purest forms of storytelling because Mm -hmm. you don't have crutches like animation or color or images to tell your story. It's really the voice. Um, And... So I wanted to try out that media and then the concept of serendipity. Obviously, it's been such a huge theme in my life mm-hmm. that I wanted to search for extraordinary stories of ordinary people and, mm-hmm. and retell their stories. And so we, um, we are just wrapping up season one with six episodes. And like I said, I mentioned episode one a lot about my friend Joe, mm-hmm. but our other episodes are just as fun. We have like an accidental mayor, like the first black and youngest mayor of Geronimo, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. which is very, very white town. So that, you know, there has to be a story there on how that <laughs> happened. Or like uh, a woman who was on the brink of suicide and how her husband saves her last minute and what her life has been like before and after that episode. Mm -hmm. Um, There's some feel-good stories in there. There's a guy who I consider addicted to serendipity and just 
continues to travel, but like we also talk about the cost of chasing the unexpected. Mm-hmm. And uh, episode four is about a guy who makes a wish on the internet that he wants to see his um, idol, a celebrity photographer. Mm. And uh, someone shows up in a box uh, in his front porch <laughs> on his 21st birthday. And yeah, so it's, wow. um, it's, it's feel good stories that I think people might want to listen to in a time where everything feels so out of control, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but the truth is, every day is out of our control. We can, we control only so little of it. And so why not invite serendipity? Why not let things happen and just do the best we can? And that's what these stories are for. Yeah. Wow. I have heard the first episode that you mentioned, and I have heard the one with the um, the mayor in Oklahoma so far. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's great. I think it's really interesting with the Serendipity podcast and also with the Humans of Treviso. It's like very like people centered or like humanity centered creative work that you're doing. Yeah, and it's really cool. It's just really cool to see. I hope you keep up with it, and I hope it continues to be rewarding for you as well. You know, thank yeah. you. Yeah, it's been it's been fun just talking to people and feeling connected again. Uh, since moving to a town that you don't know anybody in, right? And it's mm-hmm. not your culture. It's my way of again, like trying to make meaningful connections with folks. But I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. As far as your um, the semester study abroad program you did, was there anything that you in particular that you did or that you like received that made it possible for you to afford going on on this trip? Yeah, so I was really lucky. I was uh, I already ha- had a lot of scholarship money from MIT, and mm. so that actually just transferred over to cover the tuition. Okay, and then before going, they had suggested that you have like a couple, like a thousand dollars for pocket money because, um, you know, room and board was covered through the tuition, uh, the tuition scholarship. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like if you wanted to go out for dinners or hurt like shopping, we had to pay for certain visas, you know, those things add up pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And so with that target amount in mind, I spent all the semester prior to raise that money by doing some tutoring. And so that was, it was a combination of tuition and then earning the money for, for pocket change. Okay. Nice. And you felt like, you felt like you had things sufficiently covered so where you didn't really have to worry that much when you were actually participating in the program, right? Yeah. But I mean, most of the kids that went on study abroad were really rich. Oh, (laughs) right. Of course. Like really rich. Like they're, (laughs) One girl, her dad owned, like, a bank in Mexico and another Holy girl, God. like, you know, the parents were investment bankers and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, mm, that's not where my my background. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you could still have a really good time. You know, these were developing countries, so things weren't super expensive. Mm. But I don't know if I had I, – I didn't go to, like – all the fancy parties or pay that extra money to go here or there. Like, I don't know. It was, it was, there was still some inequality, but I think it was never uh, in your face. Like I Mm -hmm. never felt like I couldn't do something. It's just, I I just paid more attention to, to certain things than, than the rich kids. But uh, (laughs) it it was still very, it was still a very great experience. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's good to hear. 
Um, and then any general tips or advice that you can think to give to someone who'd like to study abroad like you did or, or just to travel more? I would say, one, just travel more. <laughs> and two, just do it. Mm. And three, uh, try going without like go with a dumb phone or travel without a laptop and see how that feels for you because mm. like you don't always have to be making TikTok videos, you know? <laughs> like spend that time getting lost in a city, spend that time uh talking to a stranger on the street or and asking for directions or spending that extra minute saying thank you and learning the story of the person who's selling you a churro. I just think that we look down at our phones so often and it's such a crutch and it makes us miss these opportunities to connect with people. Mm. And so, yeah, try it out with these technologies and, and just experience and uh, it, it, to stay in the moment. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Especially for you, since you, you, you actually know from experience that, you know, it's possible and it, you can go without being so so connected all the time. Yeah, um, you're gonna be fine. You're gonna be <laughs> fine. And if you like, if you really need something, then like someone else will have a smartphone. You know, like you're good. <laughs> you got this. You got this. Right, right. So uh, obviously, as you said, you live in in Treviso, Italy now. Might have very few or limited travel plans for this year, depending on your circumstances and like the you know global circumstances at hand. But is there anywhere in the world or you know within Italy that you would like to go in the future? Anywhere that's like on your mind or you know on your list, if you have a list of places you'd like to go. Yeah, so the old me thought that you had to go travel, like, to exotic places, and the further you went, the cooler it was, the better it was for Instagram and all that, but um, now that I'm much older, <laughs> I realize there's a beauty in getting to know the country that you live in. Mm, right? Like, yeah. I I feel like when I lived in Boston, I didn't actually explore New England as much as I would have wanted to. Mm. And so I'm just trying to take advantage of Italy. And, and it's a perfect timing to do that because, like, I would be afraid to travel too far away anyways. And we want to support the local economy. And so right now, um, every weekend, we explore a small little town uh, in mm. our region. And it's, like, not – like a chore to do. Trust me, these places are so beautiful with rolling hills. We're like so close to where Prosecco is made. Um, there's a lot of bike trails. Like Italy is, I, I get why people are in love with Italy. In addition to the food, the landscape is just incomparable. It's so beautiful. Hmm. And um, our next big trip, we're taking two weeks off in August and doing a biking trip through Friuli, Venezia, Giulia, which is a very like undiscovered place. And I hope it stays that way for a little <laughs> bit before all the McDonald's come in. Um, oh, yeah. It's in the most northeast section of Italy that borders Slovenia and Croatia. Mm -hmm. um, again, beautiful wine, beautiful bike pads bike paths um and we're going with our dog too and we bought him a little oh. carriage <laughs> for the oh, bike so, cute. so yeah we're gonna do like a slow trip i think with biking versus doing a lot of drives you know you really get to experience the landscape you take in 
the environment more. And also, it's more enjoyable for the dog. So, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's next up on our plate. Okay. Wow. Some really wonderful plans that you have coming up. I hope those are all really enjoyable experiences. And so cute that you travel with your dog. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> He's not a small dog either. He's oh, okay. 30, 30 kilos. He's 66 pounds. So Ooh. it's <laughs> oh wow but he's attaching to my husband's bike not my bike <laughs> okay well i'm sure he's gonna have a great time with you all so oh yeah i hope you'll have a good time thank you yeah okay well it has been really great uh getting to speak with you today i only have one last question for you and that is where can people reach you or keep up with you online if you'd like them to do so so I'm like not great at social media, but uh, my dog has an Instagram. <laughs> so people can follow my dog at Alpus, A-L-P-U-S of the Alps. But for our podcasts, uh, we have obviously all the channels. Our website is www.serendipitystories.co. Mm-hmm. And the Instagram and Facebook is at serendipitystories.podcast. And then I have a website, it's esolmkim.com, Y-E-S-E-U-L-M as in Mary, K-I-M.com. And that's about it. All right. Perfect. <laughs> Sounds pretty simple to simple ways to keep up with you or to, to reach you if people need to do so. So um or follow your dog, of course. Um. Yes. Follow Alpus. He has a great life. So. <laughs> well, great life thanks to you. So, you know. Okay. Well, great. This has been really fun. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as well. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed learning more about you and what you've done. And uh, I hope you have a great e- evening, right? It's evening and in, in yeah, Jesus, it's right? four, four o'clock right now. Okay. <laughs> and I just want to say thank you for creating this platform. I mean, like, what a great resource uh, for anyone thinking about studying abroad or have done it and be like a nostalgic trip. Like, it's it's really, really cool. So I thank you for, for bringing this out there to the world. Oh, thank you, Yesel. I really appreciate that. Oh, Made me feel all warm inside. I really do appreciate that. That means but a you lot. Should. You should. Like, this is, it's a co- not only a cool idea, but practical, but also good storytelling. I mean, like, who doesn't have a good story, you know, from right. studying abroad? So mm-hmm. I think you've really chosen a, a great topic. Oh, thank you. I really do appreciate that so much. Um, that's, that just made my day. Okay. So, um, <laughs> But yeah, thank you again for your time. I will I will let you go. Uh, but again, you will hear from me in September. Um, okay. And of course, if anything comes up between now and then, I'll you can let me know or I'll let you know. But until then, you you take care, okay? And enjoy thank traveling you. with your husband and your and your and your dog. Thank <laughs> you so much. Have a good one, Danielle. Bye. All right, you too. Bye. Bye. All right, y'all. There it is. Thanks to Yesel for being such a wonderful guest, and I hope you like how this all turned out. For the rest of you listening, don't forget to follow this podcast at Young Gifted and Abroad on Instagram and Facebook, and at YG Abroad on Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out guest profiles and resource lists on younggiftedandabroad.com. And if you enjoy what you've been hearing so far, then please continue listening to this podcast wherever podcasts are. And you are.
are welcome to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher while you're at it. And as always, if you have questions or comments to share, or if you yourself would like to be a guest on the show, then feel free to email me at younggiftedandabroad at gmail.com. So for the next episode, in two weeks, the guest is going to be someone from Detroit who got their master's degree in Sydney, Australia. But before doing that, they also had some whirlwind experiences in various countries in Europe. So you can look forward to hearing all about that in two weeks. But until then, thank you so much for listening and talk to you next time.